You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 56. In today's Tidbit Tuesday, we're going to chat about photographing some of my favorite subjects, waterfalls and streams, with a focus on gear and settings. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hello, my friends, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. If you follow me over on Instagram, you may have seen my post of a small waterfall last week. And in it, I asked if you all would like me to do a Tidbit Tuesday on photographing waterfalls and streams. And the overall response was a resounding yes. So thank you to all who replied to that post and inspiring the topic for today's episode. I love photographing waterfalls and streams, not just because it's relaxing and peaceful to listen to the sound of the water, but because they provide numerous compositional opportunities and because they make great subjects for practicing different exposure techniques. Waterfalls and streams are one of the few subjects in landscape photography that allow you to take your time composing a photograph of a moving subject and one where, in some cases, shutter speed may actually take priority over aperture. And we're going to talk about settings in just a moment. But first, let's go over some gear and accessory recommendations. So since waterfalls and streams are moving subjects, it's ideal to have a camera that's going to allow you to control the shutter speed in manual or shutter priority mode. So a DSLR mirrorless or a film SLR camera. So not your typical point and shoot. In terms of lenses, really any focal length can be used to create compelling compositions of waterfalls and streams. Most typically, we see the wide angle view, you know, anywhere from 16 to 35 millimeters. And that's totally fine if you're capturing a big waterfall or you're trying to get a real deep depth of field of a stream. But don't forget that the telephoto can also be used to create really beautiful compositions focusing in on the details of the water. So don't leave the telephoto lens at home. Bring it along with you and and have some fun with it. Typically, when you're photographing waterfalls and streams, you're going to be using long shutter speeds. And for that reason, using a tripod is a must. It's pretty impossible to handhold at these shutter speeds. And having a very sturdy tripod is also important, especially if you're going to be in the water You don't want the current of the river or the stream to take your tripod out. And so make sure that you're using a sturdy tripod. An accessory that I think is a must have for photographing waterfalls and streams or really any landscape photography. I love it. It's just an L bracket. So most tripod ball heads do come with the ability to put your camera at a 90 degree angle, which enables you to change your composition from a portrait to landscape orientation. And that's definitely a handy feature, but it's even better, in my opinion, to use an L bracket. So an L bracket is just a piece of metal that basically mounts to your camera, just like a tripod base plate would, but it's shaped like an L. And so the camera can attach to the head of the tripod, either on the bottom or on the side. In terms of photographing water, the advantage is that you can set your tripod up in a safe location and then you can 
easily change the orientation of your camera from portrait to landscape mode without needing to rebalance the tripod legs, which is hard to do sometimes when you've got water around and slippery rocks and things like that. An optional accessory that some people like to use and I occasionally use on and off is a shutter release cable. And the reason for using this is so that you're not introducing any additional camera vibration by just simply depressing the shutter button. And so it's handy to be able to set your camera up and remotely trigger the shutter. That said, typically when I'm doing waterfalls and streams, I'm totally happy just using the internal camera timer. And I set it to about a five second delay between every time I hit the shutter button. Because the way water flows is constantly changing, the resulting pattern in the water will be slightly different between images, even if you are using long shutter speeds. And so I recommend taking several images in succession to try to capture as many variations of the water flow that you can so that you can choose the best one later. Another thing that you could do, especially if you're trying to go for freezing the motion of the water using fast shutter speeds rather than creating that silky, creamy look, is to put your camera into continuous shooting mode so that it's almost like photographing wildlife and using the shutter release cable. And then you can just quickly fire off shots, trying to continually freezing the motion of the water as it's moving very fast. So let's talk for a second about photography filters. Now, if I had to choose only one filter for photographing water, it would be a circular polarizer. And I did an entire Tidbit Tuesday episode about photography filters. Um, so I'll link that up in the show notes for you. And I won't go into all the nitty gritty details of filters here. But the reason why a circular polarizer is so important for photographing waterfalls and streams is because it reduces the glare on the water and on any wet surfaces like rocks and leaves. So some advantages of using a circular polarizer include that polarization is an effect that cannot be replicated in post-processing. Circular polarizers typically reduce exposure by about one stop, and this can allow you to use even longer shutter speeds, which is convenient when you're trying to slow down the motion of the water. And thirdly, it can increase color enhancement. So colors tend to be a little bit more vibrant when the light is polarized slightly with a polarizing filter. Another filter that I'll typically use for photographing moving water are neutral density filters. And the idea behind a neutral density or ND filter is that it blocks a certain amount of light from hitting the camera's sensor. And this allows you to use even longer shutter speeds than you would normally be able to do under the natural light conditions. Typically, I like to use a three or six stop ND filter for photographing waterfalls and streams. I very, very rarely go up to the 10 stop filter. Another kind of filter that I'll occasionally use with waterfall photography is a graduated neutral density or grad ND filter. And I'll only use this if I'm choosing to include the sky or any other brighter areas of the scene that may be brighter than my main subject. And then I use the grad ND to help me even out the exposure a little bit. And unlike using a circular polarizer, the effects of a grad ND can be replicated in post-processing. And so some photographers have stopped using them altogether. And there are many brands of high quality photography filters out there. The ones that I currently use and recommend are from Breakthrough Photography. What I like is that they have a magnetic filter holder that screws onto the end of your lens. And then the circular polarizer or CPL filter itself is magnetic. And so it's very easy to use. You just click it on, click it off. And it's, in my opinion, so much better than those screw on photography filters that can often get stuck and jammed. 
They also have a magnetic filter that is a CPL and a three-stop ND filter in one. So that is my second most commonly used filter for photographing waterfalls and streams because the three-stop ND allows me to slow the shutter speed down even further. And the advantage of this is that it's just one piece of glass. It's two filters in one, basically. And so you get the same effect with just one piece of glass, which reduces any sort of artifacts that may be forming when you start to stack different filters on top of one another. All right, so switching gears away from gear to talk about settings. So I recommend shooting in manual mode so that you have full control over your exposure settings. Now, if you're not comfortable with manual mode yet, then waterfalls and streams are actually really great subjects to practice with. As I said at the beginning, waterfalls and streams are both a moving subject and a stationary one. And so they are very forgiving subjects to practice on when you're trying to learn how to control different aspects of exposure and composition. So you can take your time and play around with your settings until you get comfortable with how shutter speed and aperture work to control motion and depth of field and how ISO can then be used to make the final tweaks to balance out the exposure. So let's talk about shutter speed. It's probably the most important setting we'll talk about today. Manipulating the shutter speed allows you to capture a sense of motion either by freezing the movement with a fast shutter speed or by creating a smooth, silky appearance of the water with a slow shutter speed. And whether you use a fast or slow shutter speed is really up to you and your liking and what kind of mood that you're trying to portray in the image. So for example, shorter shutter speeds that freeze the motion of the water can convey a sense of energy or power of the water, whereas longer shutter speeds that make the water appear more silky give more of a sense of flow or peacefulness or a meandering feel of the stream. The volume and speed at which the water is moving and the character of the water that you're hoping to capture in the composition will ultimately determine the shutter speed that you should use. So for example, Generally speaking, for photographing smaller waterfalls and streams, I recommend starting with a shutter speed of around one sixth of a second up to about two seconds, and then you can start to tweak your settings from there based on your liking. Whereas if you want to freeze the motion of the water of a waterfall that's really raging, then I would recommend starting with shutter speeds around one one thousandth of a second and then tweaking from there. Now, if you are using longer shutter speeds to smooth out the movement of the water, keep in mind that anything else in the scene that is moving is going to be blurry as well. So oftentimes this is due to wind blowing tree branches, but it could also be just the sheer force of the water going over the waterfall that can actually also cause little air currents that are harder to see, even when it's not a windy day. And so the vegetation like ferns and things like that that are around the waterfall may also flutter a little bit. And these can result in these little blurred areas of the plants that are, can be hard to see on the back of the camera's LCD screen while in the field. So as a best practice, it's always a good idea to take a couple of extra images of the same composition, but using a much faster shutter speed to freeze the motion of anything else that could be moving in the scene. So to accommodate for the change in exposure settings, you'll have to increase your ISO and also just watch your histogram and adjust your settings to achieve a similar exposure as you did with your longer exposure shots. And since you're not going to use this image file for the water, 
you could consider removing the circular polarizer for this faster shutter speed image in order to gain an extra stop of light so that you can speed up the shutter a little bit more easily without cranking the ISO super high. And then what you can do is use something like layers and layer masks in a program like Photoshop so that you can blend the areas of the image where the vegetation moved with the longer exposure image of the water. And if you are new to using layers and layer masks in Photoshop, I'll put a link in the show notes to a video tutorial I did that simplifies the concepts. All right, now let's talk about aperture. So to choose the best aperture for waterfall photography, you need to consider basically two things. One, what sort of depth of field do you want for your composition? And two, based on your shutter speed, what aperture would give you the correct exposure? So for waterfall and stream compositions where you want to capture a deep depth of field, then using apertures around f11 to f16 is usually a really good starting place. For compositions where you want a shallow depth of field, or if you're using like a telephoto lens and zooming in on an area of a waterfall to isolate it from the rest of the scene, then using wider apertures like f4 to f11 are also a good starting place. Now let's talk about ISO. So many photographers think that ISO controls the sensitivity of the digital sensor, but this actually is not accurate. The sensitivity of the digital sensor does not change by raising or lowering the ISO. Rather, what it does is the ISO amplifies the signal from the sensor and makes the resulting image brighter. So everything that the camera sensor detects is amplified by the ISO, even any sort of noise. And so that's why we often see more noise when we increase the ISO. So as such, it's best to only increase the ISO above your camera's base ISO if you need it to properly balance out the exposure based on the shutter speed and aperture settings you chose for your waterfall or stream composition. If you have plenty of light and you don't have a neutral density filter to allow you to slow the shutter speed down to a level that you want, then one thing you could try is going below your camera's base ISO. Most modern digital cameras have that capability and that can allow you to add more stops of light by increasing your shutter speed. Now, as you're dialing in your exposure settings, be sure to check your histogram to make sure you're not blowing out the highlights, which is something that is very easy to do when photographing moving water. So you wanna expose for the brightest areas of the scene, which is typically the moving water itself, to avoid any clipping of the highlights and losing pixel information in that area. And I did a Tidbit Tuesday on histograms, so I'll link that up in the show notes as well. Since we're talking about exposure settings, let's talk a little bit about light. So generally speaking, the best time to photograph water is on a cloudy day or just after a rain. The clouds act like a big softbox in the sky, and the effect of that is that it evens out the highlights and shadow areas of any landscape. So this is especially helpful for photographing moving water where the highlights are already very easy to blow out. But if you happen to be out on a sunny day, then try to find waterfalls or streams where the sunlight is not directly hitting the water, where it could lead to this sort of patchy blown out area in the final photograph. However, side light or low angle light is much more forgiving and can also result in adding some color or mood to the image. So I'm not saying that you should avoid photographing waterfalls and streams if it's sunny out, but just be mindful of how much direct light is on the water. And alternatively, you could take advantage of the fact that it's a bright sunny day and the direct light on the water 
to use really fast shutter speeds to freeze the movement of the water. And this can be a great way to capture more detail and evoke a feeling of power and energy rather than one of calmness and flow. Also, consider excluding the sky. The sky is often too bright, even if it's properly exposed, because it can pull the viewer's attention away from the main subject. So if the sky is contributing something meaningful to the composition, because it's colorful and beautiful and all of that, then by all means, find a way to include it. And you can use a graduated neutral density filter to help you underexpose the sky a little bit to help even out the exposure of the overall image. Otherwise, if the sky isn't contributing a lot, find a way to compose without it. Okay, so now let's talk briefly about where to focus. So obviously, this is going to depend on your composition and what you're trying to portray in the photograph. But generally speaking, when using wider focal lengths, we want a deep depth of field to get as much of the scene in focus. And one approach to maximizing the depth of field is to focus at the hyperfocal distance, which is the distance between your camera and a point in the scene at which everything from half that distance out to infinity will be acceptably sharp. And the hyperfocal distance is calculated based on the aperture and the focal length you're using, as well as your camera sensor size. And I go into more detail about the hyperfocal distance in my Hyperfocal Distance Made Easy ebook, which you can download for free through the link in the episode description or the show notes. Once you understand how to find and use the hyperfocal distance, you may wonder once you're out in the field, well, how do I measure the hyperfocal distance? (laughs) That can be a challenge. And I share various approaches to that in an article on the Outdoor Photography School website called How to Measure the Hyperfocal Distance. So I will link that in the show notes as well. Another method for achieving a deep depth of field is to use a process called focus stacking which involves taking a series of images of the same scene, but with overlapping depths of field by changing the focal point between the images. And then you can blend the sharpest areas of the images in post-processing. So although this requires a little more time and effort, you can get a deeper depth of field than you can with the hyperfocal distance method. And lastly, let's talk about how to keep your photography gear and you dry, safe, and comfortable. Now, many DSLR and mirrorless cameras are weather sealed, meaning they have some internal protection from water, but not all camera bodies are protected this way. And and I just think it's a best practice to prevent water on your camera and lens, even if you have a weather sealed system, just to keep it extra safe. And thankfully, it is pretty easy to protect your camera and lens from spraying water droplets that may be coming off a nearby waterfall. My favorite method for keeping my camera and lens dry is to just drape a lint-free microfiber cloth over the camera and lens while I'm photographing. The cloths are very handy for also wiping down the wet equipment, including my tripod, which may be submerged in water. I also like to keep a lens cloth in a pocket so that I can quickly wipe the glass on my lens frequently between taking images Another thing that some people will do is use a rocket blower to blow the drops off of the lens. I've heard of other people putting an extra piece of glass over their lens and while they're composing the image and then removing that before they take the shot. Um, I have not tried that method myself, but it's something that you could consider doing. Depending on the type of filters I'm using, 
If I'm able to attach a lens hood to the end of my lens, I will use that and drape the microfiber cloth over that as well. And that can help to prevent some droplets from hitting the front element of the lens. And lastly, I don't usually use this for photographing waterfalls and streams, but you might depending on how much spray is coming off of the waterfall. But you can get these little rain jackets, basically like a big plastic bag that can fit and cinch around your camera and lens and over your tripod legs and keep things pretty dry. Now, I've mentioned a few times about getting into the water with your tripod and camera to photograph the water that way. And I highly recommend doing that. You can get, if it's safe to do it, there are a lot of really cool compositions that you can get when you're in the water itself. Now, typically when you've got your camera on your tripod, you usually take your camera strap off because any flapping of the camera strap may make some vibrations in your camera setup. And so what I do for this is I really like using the Peak Design camera leash with the Peak Design anchor links. And so this is just clip on, clip off, clip on, clip off. It's very easy to use. And when I'm using a tripod in the water, I actually keep the camera leash attached to the camera and I hold it so that if a current should come and knock things over, I at least have a hand on something that I can prevent my camera from falling into the water. And don't forget to protect your tripod. Also, if you're doing some water photography where your tripod is submerged, then it's a good idea to keep those tripod legs extended until it's dried out. You don't want to introduce that water to the inside of your tripod when you collapse the legs. So either wait for it to dry out on its own or use another microfiber cloth to wipe your legs down before you collapse them. And lastly, you're probably going to get a little wet too. And so what I recommend for this is to wear a waterproof jacket and pants. This can help keep your clothes dry. If I'm in cold water, I like to use NRS neoprene socks. This can help keep your feet warm and dry. If it's in the summer and I want to be walking in, then I'll use river sandals. Sometimes I'll do that with the neoprene socks just to help keep grit out of my toes and that sort of thing. In the warmer season or even in the colder seasons, I really like to use waders. This can help you wade into deeper water or at least keep your shorts or pants dry. Just make sure that you have waders that have good grip on the bottom because sometimes when you are walking into waterfalls and streams, the rocks can be very, very slippery. And this brings me to another thing that I like to bring along, which are hiking poles, especially if you're crossing a lot of water. It can help for balance, uh, especially on those slippery rocks when you're trying to get from one side of the stream to the other to change your composition. And lastly, if you are doing this in, say, the winter and you're photographing frozen waterfalls or in those shoulder seasons, which are some of my favorite times to photograph waterfalls where the water's flowing, but there's ice and snow as well. That can result in very slippery conditions. And so I recommend using micro spikes over your boots or crampons or something like that. Now, I've got links to all of these products in my complete guide to photographing waterfalls and streams, which you can read on the Outdoor Photography School website as well. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this Tidbit Tuesday. As always, I appreciate you tuning in and I hope today's information inspired you to get out and photograph some waterfalls and streams. And just remember, while you're out there, slow down, enjoy the sound of the water, and appreciate being in nature. It's not always about getting the shot. You can find all the links mentioned today in the show notes at outdoorphotographypodcast.com slash 56. 
And I'm curious to know what sort of photography or outdoor questions you have. So if you have a question that you'd like me to answer or a topic that you'd like to suggest for an upcoming Tidbit Tuesday, just reach out to me through the Outdoor Photography Podcast website, or you could simply record your message through the link on the website as well. And I'll be back here next week with professional landscape photographer Michael Fry to talk about the art and craft of landscape photography, finding unique compositions in an iconic location, understanding light, creating mood, and a whole lot more. So be sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss out on this or any of our upcoming episodes. And until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.